there are a lot of stories in the Bible, like I'm just reading it, like la la la, isn't this great, woohoo, and then you trip over a really weird story, and you're like, what the heck is this? Like, what is going on? I've read this book before, I didn't even remember this happened, like, what is this? So we're going to talk about one of those today, because I enjoy that, uh, because then I will then go away and like read books and do Google things and try and figure out what is actually happening in said weird story, um, because it's always good to try and understand the things that you don't understand in the Bible. So, context. Um, we're talking today about a guy called Abraham. Um, Abraham. Well, I'm going to say Abraham for this entire talk, so we're going to have to deal with it. So, so this guy Abraham, he shows up in Genesis 12, uh, following the stories of creation, and then you've got the story of the fall, um, you've got the story of the flood, so you probably know about Noah and the ark, but you've got that in around eight to, chapters 8 to 10-ish. Um, and then chapter 11, you've got the story of the Tower of Babel, which is a good one. I like that one. Listen to, listen to it or read it, whatever, however you read the Bible. Um, and then you've got this guy, Abraham, shows up in chapter 12. Um, he's, okay, so he's called Abraham throughout most of the story. God changes his name. The bit that we're going to read, he's called Abraham. So I'm going to try and call him Abraham while I'm talking, because that's what he's called at this point. But I may say Abraham, and that have grace. But we're talking about Abraham. Um, so God has promised this guy. He has promised to give him a whole nation of descendants. He has promised to bless the earth, the whole earth, through them. He said to him, go to this land that I'm going to tell you to go to. Walk the length and the breadth of it, and I'm going to give you every piece of it as far as you can see. Uh, which is a pretty awesome promise, if you think about it. So God makes some of these promises to Abe at the beginning of chapter 12, some at the end of chapter 13, and then again where we're going to pick up in chapter 15, and I'm going to need my lovely assistance. We're going to read it together. So I needed uh, someone to play God, and I thought I need someone who is holy, you know, full of holiness, and full of love, and full of goodness, so I called on Josie. And I needed someone to play Abraham, who's an 80-year-old man, so I called on <laughs> So... And uh, I'm going to narrate, because, duh. Okay. How did Abraham So, Genesis 15, verse 7. He said to, God said to Abraham, God's just finding his line. I am the Lord, who brought you out of um, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said... Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? <laughs> oh boy, so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer. Oh, you mean a heifer? <laughs> oh God, I think it's a heifer. <laughs> what did you say, God? Uh, a goat. Okay, I didn't have a goat, so we've got a raccoon. <laughs> Did you buy a raccoon? I, I mean, God, raccoon. Raccoon. Um, a ram. Uh, again, I had no sheep, so we have a rabbit pan puppet. Oh, a ram slash rabbit. Um, each three years old. I'm three. I'm three. I'm three. <laughs> um, along with a dove. It's a duck, but it rattles. Oh. I knew one off. The rattling. And a young pigeon. So, I didn't have a pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went with something.
something else that began with P. <laughs> so we have a platypus. Oh, uh, right. Abraham brought all these to him. <laughs> Cut them in two. Please do not do that. I love all of you. I just pretend. Just pretend. And arrange the halves opposite each other. Where are we? The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. Good day to be a bird. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Sure, sure, we have some birds sure, of prey? Sure. Birds of prey! Hattie, be a bird of prey! Now! Now, yes. right now, try and grab the carcasses. Abraham will shoo you away. That is a symbol of the presence of the Lord. The Lord, if you would not mind, passing between the pieces. Thank you. <laughs> the Lord dances well. Uh, Lord of the dance. Right. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, and I just want to hear Josie read all of this. Good luck. To your descendants, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great <laughs> river of the Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Keep the lie. You're probably the best one to do it. Welcome! Thank you, my lovely um, assistants. You may turn to your seats. You did really well. You did so good. Careers in drama for all of you. Right. I did drama A level. So, as you may have gathered, this is a weird story. No, yeah, really. Yeah, um, So, I mean, that's not in the original Hebrew, but it's okay. So, uh, we, what we're going to do, if we ever get there, is we're just going to walk through it. We're just going to walk through it again and find out what's going on and talk about it a bit and see where we can just see Jesus in the story. Because <laughs> well, we could just go home. Jesus is in the platypus. No, okay. So, back to verse 7, where we kicked off. So, God says, I am the Lord. I did this stuff. And Abraham says, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? So, I'm going to have to take the platypus away if he continues no, to distract you. No, no. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so, Abraham has doubts, and he expresses them to God. He's real with God. He isn't disrespectful. He isn't refusing to, to believe what God has said. Um, and I think both of those things are actually really important. I think it is possible to express 
your doubts to God in a way that is not disrespectful or denying who he is. Um, it's possible to say, look, God, I, 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 do, I respect who you are. I know who you are. I know what you can do. I know what you've said that you will do. But in my finite understanding, I just don't see how this is possible. I don't see how this is good. I don't see how you are faithful or just or loving in this situation. Please help me to see those things. It's because it's got me confused or scared or whatever you might be feeling. Abraham, Abraham, he does this. He, he's just honest with God. He knows who God is. He knows that God is sovereign. He calls him sovereign Lord. Uh, he knows what God has promised. Uh, but he has doubts about that because he's looking at himself. He's like, I'm 80. How am I? I don't have any kids. And you've promised me this land. You've promised me all this stuff. I don't see how that's going to happen. He has doubts and they're valid. And he expresses them to God in a really healthy, holy way. And it reminds me... Um, of this guy who was talking to Jesus, I think his kid was sick, and he'd come to Jesus to, because you know, he needed his, his kid to be healed, and he says something like, Jesus, if you, if you can, will you heal my son? And Jesus is like, if I can. And the guy says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's this, I, I, I do believe, I know who you are, I know what you can do, please help me to believe. Like, it it, it's expressing the same thing that Abraham is expressing, I think. Um, yeah, he's saying, I want to believe what you say. Please help me to. And God honours that. God responds to Abraham. And that is what is going on in the rest of this passage. Verse 9. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, which we did not demonstrate, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So, what is happening here? This is called cutting a covenant. Um, it is how people in the ancient world used to make a covenant with, another, with one another. And a covenant is like a binding oath to the death. I don't think that we actually have an equivalent in our society. I think the closest that we get is marriage. Um, but divorce is such a normal thing to us and we just... Our view of marriage is so skewed that I don't think even that does it justice. Um, so a, a covenant is like, it's, it, you make these promises and it's, it's to the death. It's, that's it. Um, yeah, when you cut a covenant, this is how you do it. So you chop these animals in two. You lay them out so there's an aisle in the middle. And I felt like an air hostess doing that. I don't know why. Um, you lay them out so there's an aisle in the middle. And the, uh, the two parties who are making the covenant... Can I borrow you? you? You can help me illustrate. Come stand with me, Josie. So Josie and I are making a covenant. So when we do this, we take these animals, we cut them in half, we lay them out, and then we walk between the pieces in this aisle, in this blood. And it's like we are saying, I, I'm saying, I will keep my promises to you, Josie, on pain of death. And if I break this covenant, if I break these promises, then let it be to me, like, let it be done to me as we've done to these animals. And she is saying the same thing to me. She's saying, I will keep these promises to you on pain of death. If I break this promise to you, then let it be to me. Did they do this at weddings? Then? I don't know. <laughs> why, why Potentially. Did well, I don't know. Google it. Come back next week and let me know. Would the person get cut in half if they broke the covenant? No. So. Okay. Maybe. So, the, the penalty of breaking this covenant, what I want you to get, the penalty of breaking this covenant is death. Alright? It's like, it's a serious thing, serious business. Um, there is another way that they use this covenant, and they used it, this is kind of between a king and a land that he has conquered. So if you 
If a king goes to conquer a, ter conquer a territory, then all of the lesser conquered kings might come to him and be like, would you protect us? Like, we'll make a covenant with you and you can protect us and look after us and, and that will be great for us because, you know, you're pretty awesome. And in that scenario, it is only the lesser party, it's the conquered kings who walk between the pieces. It's only they who take on the consequences if the covenant is broken. So with this kind of covenant, it's the greater king, it's like the overlord, saying to them, I will protect you, and I will provide you with a system of justice, and I will bless you, and I will look after you as long as you keep your covenant, as long as you keep your side of the bargain. Um, but if you rebel against me, then let it be done to you as we've done to these animals. So in that scenario, it's only the lesser ones, the conquered people, who take on any of the consequences. Does that make sense? Good. So, you are Abraham. You call God Yahweh Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, in the previous chapter. He says to you, I want you to go and get the stuff ready for a covenant. Abraham knows what's going on. God doesn't have to tell him what to do with all of these animals. He just lists them, and Abraham's like, right, I know exactly what's going on here. God says to you, go and get the stuff ready for a covenant. What do you think is about to happen? Which kind of covenant do you think is about to be made? Do you think it's the one with two equal parties taking on the consequences together? Or do you think it's the one where the greater party is standing here saying, yeah, I'll do this and I'll bless you if you keep it, and the lesser one takes on all the consequences? Which do you think it is? Correct, I wonder! If anybody said anything else, I would have been offended. Um, we've clearly not been teaching you well if that had been the case. So, we'll get to that. So, Abraham thinks, Abraham thinks that he is about to enter a covenant with God where he has to keep his end of the bargain in exchange for the blessings that God has promised him. So Abraham said, God, you've promised me all these things. How can I know that you're going to keep it? And he thinks God is saying, well, we'll make a covenant. We'll make a promise. And that means that if you do all of these things and you keep your end of the deal, then I will give you all of these promises and these blessings. That's what he thinks is going to happen. He knows that he is going to have to perfectly keep his promises to a perfect God. And he knows himself. He knows his own imperfections. You can read about that in the previous three chapters. He screws up a lot. He knows that perfection is far too high a standard for him. And he knows that if he doesn't keep his end of the bargain, it means death. And he has no idea what his end of the bargain is going to be. He is understandably terrified. Like, he's, he's, he's shook. So, verse 12. As the sun was setting... You're welcome. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. He's not just having a nap. It's not that he's got to the end of the day and the sun's going down and he's like, well, time for bed. Like, <laughs> I don't know why he talks like a farmer, a Scottish farmer. So, <laughs> the, the word in the Hebrew, I did my Hebrew word research because that's the thing that I enjoy doing. The word used here for deep sleep is tardema. And it is only used in the Old Testament seven times. And every time it is used, it's, it's talking about this sleep that comes from God, and it's like this coma level of sleep. So it's the sleep that Adam was under when God took the rib out of his side to make Eve. Or it's the sleep that King Saul's entire army was under so that David could sneak through this whole enemy camp, get into the king's tent, nick some of his stuff, and then get back out again without anybody waking up or noticing him. They were, they were very asleep. Um, in Isaiah and Proverbs, this word tardema is used to talk about the kind of spiritual dullness that leads to death. It's like spiritually, your eyes are shut and you, you are totally unaware of God. It's like you're comatose. And that is the kind of sleep that we're talking about here. Abraham can't move. He can't speak. He is just on the ground, out of it, and he is under this terrible weight of darkness 
and dread. He is not having a good day. And as he's frozen in this condition, God starts to tell him what he means by his promises. So he gives Abraham some more detail about what's going to happen to his descendants and to Abraham himself. You get that in verses 13 through 16. So he's like, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I'll punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. You will go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. So God is just, he's, he's just explaining a bit more about what the promises mean. Um, he reveals more of his power. He shows that he knows what's going to happen before it does, that he orders and rules over events. If I am Abraham at this point, I am even more scared than I was before. God is just, he's just proving how much greater than me he is, right? He's, he's just proving it. And we're surely about to get to the point where he says, and I will do all of this if you, dot, 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 whatever that might be. I'm, like, if I'm Abraham, I'm about, I'm about to find out what my fate is. But then, our gracious God, as always, does something totally unexpected and totally mind-blowing. If you read verse 17 again, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So like I said, that is an, a symbol of the presence of God. Abram is on the ground, motionless, and as he's just lying there, God is the one who goes alone between the pieces. God doesn't say, I will do all of this, I will keep all of these promises, if you... Abram's only part in this covenant is to receive the blessings of it. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't have to promise a thing. He only has to accept the gifts and the blessings that God is offering to him. And God takes all of the consequences. Do you get how ridiculous that is? He is saying, Abraham, I am so serious about keeping these promises to you that I am willing to take this oath to my own destruction if I break my word. And you don't have to do a thing. It's just, it's stupid. It's ridiculous. He shouldn't be allowed to do it. So imagine if you're Abraham right now. He's thinking that he is about to enter into a covenant that means certain death for him because it is impossible for him to perfectly keep his promises to a perfect God. But then God comes and takes the full weight of this covenant. Abraham said nothing. He did nothing. He had no part in it. God says, I will give you everything that I have promised you, whatever the cost to myself. This is a covenant of grace and it comes to you unconditionally because I will meet the condition. You wanted assurance. You wanted to know you could be sure of my promises. Here you go. You can be 100% sure. Every other god or religion, whether that's one that the world recognises, so like Allah or one of the... Is it 33 or 333 million gods that the Hindus have? Whatever. It's a big number. Whether it's one of the like, recognised ones or whether it's something like success or wealth or other people thinking well of you, whatever, whatever God, whatever religion, every other one will demand something from you. They will say, you have to do this. You have to earn this. You have to be this. And then you might get something good out of it, and then you might be rewarded. But our God is not like any other God. He, he says, I'm going to bless you. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to bless you. You haven't earned it. You couldn't earn it, but I'm going to bless you. You haven't done a thing, but I'm going to bless you. You didn't come to me. You didn't ask for these things from me. I just chose freely to give them to you. He freely initiates the relationship. He freely makes the promise. He doesn't have to do those things. He didn't have to reveal himself to Abraham and be like, look, I'm, hello, I'm God. I'm going to do all of these things through you, and I'm going to 
give you all of these things. He didn't have to do that. He could have just let Abraham go about his life. But he did. Just He freely initiates this relationship. He freely says, I'm going to do all of these things for you, Abraham. And then he takes this vow to his own destruction if he doesn't keep these promises so that Abraham can be certain that these things are going to happen. This is mental. This is, this is astounding. This is mind-blowing. But it's what God is like. Oh. And God, obviously, because he's God, he does keep these promises to Abraham. He keeps the covenant. It doesn't happen in Abraham's lifetime, like he said. It's actually over 400 years before Abraham's descendants under Joshua take this land. Uh, but they do. They get the land that God promised in the timing that God promised. They fill the earth. They bless it, just like he promised. And did you know, if you are a Christian, you are Abraham's spiritual descendant. Paul talks about this in the New, in the New Testament. God's plan has always been that his chosen family would multiply and fill the earth and bless it. It's what he said to Adam, and it's what he said to Noah, and it's what he said to Abraham, and it's what he says to the church. It's, it's what the church is and does. We, we, we are meant to fill the earth, to bless the earth. Except for Abraham, children were born naturally into his family, whereas now in the church, children are born supernaturally into the family. Church is God's plan A. Church is family. And the promises that God made to Abraham extend to us. That's good. That was a side note. I'm getting off track. God keeps his promises. That's where we are. Um, so I found this great phrase in a book that I was reading to prep for this. And it was, God's delays are not denials. God's delays are not denials. And what that means is that when it takes a while for something to happen, it's not the same as God saying no. He keeps his promises, always. He, he, he doesn't lie. He doesn't forget. He's never unfaithful. When he promises something, it is as good as done. God has made so many promises to you. He said that he will save and he will redeem and he will renew and restore and he'll sanctify you. He'll make you holy and he'll justify you. And he will keep every single one of those promises. Abraham knew that God would keep his promises to him because of this covenant he made. And we can know that God will keep his promises to us because he has made a new covenant with us. It says in Luke 22, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten saying, this cup is, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Thanks, buddy. So we have the assurance of this new covenant that God has made with us. But instead of the blood of animals, it's made in the blood of Jesus. Like Abraham, our only part is to accept the gift, to accept the blessings and trust in the God who made the promise. And God takes all of the pain. <coughs> he takes all of the work of keeping the promises. He, he takes all of the consequences. And he blesses us, not because we've earned it or because we deserve it, but because he chooses to. And God gives us something else that Abraham didn't have. We get like, we get like a guarantee, like a down payment. So when you buy something big, like a house which I've never done, but I've heard tales. Um, you, have to, you have to pay a deposit. And it's like you pay the first part of it. It's, it's, it's the first little amount that you're going to pay. And it's like a contract and a promise that you're going to pay the rest when you pay that deposit. That, it's like the guarantee and the down payment. It says in Ephesians 1, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit who he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he's purchased us to be his own people. 
So God's Holy Spirit in us. <laughs> no. God's Holy Spirit in us is the deposit, it's the down payment, it's the, it's the guarantee. God has put a part of himself in us as a guarantee that he will complete what he started with us and in us. So in a minute, we're going to respond in two ways. So we're going to have communion um, and remember Jesus and express our trust in the covenant that he's made and thank him for it. Um, and if that is something you're not comfortable with or if you don't believe in Jesus, then please do not take that. That's totally fine. Um, don't participate. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. But as I was reading through this the other day, I realized that that might be confusing given what I just said, that the Spirit lives in us, but we're going to ask him to come and fill us. So I just wanted to take a second for that. Um, so yes, all Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. It's, it's him that makes us new creations. Becoming a Christian is the same thing as being born by the Spirit, being born again. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, the Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. But we can experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a different way, and that's what we call being filled with the Spirit. And the best way that I have to explain that right now is how John Piper explains it, because he's a smart guy. And he says that being filled with the Spirit is having great joy in God. So he says it's being caught up in this radiant joy that flows between the members of the Trinity because of the delight that they have in each other. And since the Bible teaches that the joy of the Lord is our strength in Nehemiah, it also means that there will be power in this joy for overcoming sin and for sharing the gospel. So being filled with the Spirit is, is overflowing with joy, being victorious over sin, and being empowered to share the gospel. Um, we don't stay that way all the time, which is why we have to keep asking for it and keep pressing in and keep desiring for that to be our constant reality. Keep being filled. Uh, yeah, so the ways that God brings us to that fullness are as varied and as different as people are, and the ways that we express it are as varied and as different as we are. Uh, so people might laugh or cry or sing or dance or speak in tongues or lie on the floor, and it doesn't have to be any of these loud, sudden, thunderbolty type things. It might just be this quiet glow of joy in your spirit as you read the Bible or as you worship or as you talk about Jesus or as you walk through the woods and just look at creation and what God has made. Don't assume that being filled with the Spirit has to be a certain way. Don't limit God. He can do whatever he likes. And it's going to look different for you at different times in your life as well as different in you to somebody else. And that's totally fine.